If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Robin Hansen. He is uh, an author. He's also the chief scientist over at Consensus Point. He's an associate professor of economics at George Mason University. He holds a BS in physics and NS in physics. He's got uh, an MA in conceptual foundations of science from the University of Chicago. He's got a PhD in social science from Caltech. And I'm sure there are other ones as well. Welcome to the show, Robin. It's great to be here. I'm really fascinated by your book. So let's start there. Tell me about the new book. What is it called? My latest book is co-authored with Kevin Simler, and it's called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And that subtitle is the key. We are just wrong about why we do lots of things. Uh, for most everything we do, we have a story. We, if, if I were to stop you at any one moment and ask you, why are you doing that? You'll almost always have a story and you'll be pretty confident about it. And you don't know how that, that is just wrong a lot. Your stories about why you do things are not that accurate. So is it the case that we do everything essentially unconsciously and then the conscious mind follows along behind it and tries to rationalize, oh, I did that because of blank. And then the brain fools us by switching the order of those two things. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Uh, that's part of it, yes. Uh, your conscious mind is not the king or president of your mind. It's the press secretary. It's the creepy guy who stands behind the king saying, a judicious choice, sir. Uh, your job isn't to know why you do things or to make decisions. Your job is to make up good explanations for them. And there's some really interesting research that bears that out with split brain patients and 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 the like. How how do we know that about the brain? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, we we know that in many circumstances, uh, when people don't actually know why they do things, they still make up confident explanations. So we know that you are just the sort of creature who will always have a confident story about why you do things, even when you're wrong. Now, that by itself doesn't say that you're wrong. It just says that you might well be wrong. Uh, in order to show that you are wrong a lot in specific situations, there's really no substitute for looking at the things you do and trying to come up with a theory about why you do them. And that's what most of our book is about. So our first third of the book is reviewing all the literature we have on why people might plausibly not be aware of their motives, why it might make sense for evolution to create a creature who isn't aware and wants to make up another story. But we really can't convince you uh, that you're wrong in, in detail unless we go to specific things. And so that's why the last two thirds of the book goes over 10 particular areas of life. And in each area of life, it says, here's your standard story about why you do things. And here are all these details of people's behavior that just don't make much sense from this usual story's point of view. And then we say, here's another theory that makes a lot more sense of the details. That's a better story about why you do things. And isn't it interesting that you're not aware of that? You're not saying that's why you're doing things. You're doing the other thing. Give me an example. So, for example, uh, school. If you were to look at people's uh, graduation speech ceremony uh, uh, speeches or their letters of application or a politician's speech, the usual story about why people go to school is to learn the material, of course. Uh, but in fact, learning the material just doesn't explain our behaviors very well. Uh, people learn a lot of material that isn't very useful and they still get paid more. Uh, most of what people learn, they don't remember. And even what they do remember isn't very useful. Uh, people can get um, 
free education if they just sit in on classes, uh, but almost nobody ever does that. Uh, people are eager for classes to be canceled, even though they might learn less. Uh, people get paid a lot more for the last year of high school and college compared to the other years, even though they don't learn more in those last years. So these and other datum say this theory that you're going to school to learn the material just doesn't make sense of a lot of the detail. And we have uh, the alternative story is that you're going to school to show off. Showing off makes a lot more sense of these details. You're showing off how smart, conscientious, conformist you are. Maybe you're learning general habits of, of modern workplace behavior. These things make sense of the details. And um, there's, of course, there's a question, well, if, if this is why you're really doing things, why don't you know? Why don't you admit it? And we have other chapters on medicine, conversation, politics, religion, art, charity, laughter even, body language. And in each, each of these areas, uh, we, if we were to ask you why you're doing things, uh, you will have a story and it'll be wrong. So do cognitive biases play into that in any, in any way? Or are you kind of looking at something completely different? Well, so the cognitive bias literature is usually presented people, to people as if Everybody has all this long list of quirky mistakes we can make. We, we might be overconfident, we might anchor, et cetera. And it's presented as if there's no particular pattern to all of it and there's no particular direction of the mistakes. There's just a lot of different ways that your mind could make mistakes because, hey, everything's complicated. Our book instead is saying there's this one really big consistent mistake you're making, uh, which is that you present a, a good looking view about your motives when your motives are actually darker or lower than you'd like to admit. It's not a random set of strange, quirky mistakes. It's one big consistent mistake because of one big consistent reason. But would that apply to, like, when I think of my favorite cognitive bias, you know, it's rhyme is reason effect. Things, uh, sing, things sound more plausible if they rhyme. <laughs> like uh, sure. a stitch in time saves nine, or if it doesn't fit, you must quit. Um, but that, that, I'm not masking anything about me with that, am I? I'm just like, oh, that, that makes sense. Right, yeah. that, that's the sort of bias that people like to think in terms of. It's just a quirky little mistake you make because of some little quirk of our minds, and it makes a little sense, but there's no particular larger pattern, and uh, you just like notice that we might make these little mistakes. Uh, but if we say you consistently are wrong about why you go to school and why you go to the doctor and why you vote, uh, these are not little quirky mistakes. But, these are big things. Let's assume you're right, but let's also assume further that your brain has a really compelling reason for you to think you're virtuous when you're not, and you're 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 going in there and upsetting that apple cart. So aren't you like, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't know the truth? That whatever reason you know, evolution yeah. has granted so, us this delusion, and you're you're in there upsetting that. Right. So. We're not saying that everybody should understand this and become aware of it and acknowledge it. That's definitely not what we're saying. We're saying that people who study human behavior, this is something they need to come to terms with. And we're saying that people who study policy and recommend policies need to come to terms with it. So most people who do education policy, they presume that the point of school is to learn the material. And they come up with many reforms and show that there are better ways to learn the material than we've uh, been using. And people are just not interested in adopting those things. And the key question is, well, why don't we adopt those things if uh, they would, in fact, help us learn the material better? And we claim is that we really know at some level that's not why we're going to school. And so we're really not interested. So if you're going to be in policy world, then you definitely need to understand these things. Otherwise, uh, you'll just be wrong. 
And in addition, ordinary people can sometimes benefit from these things. So if you're in a situation that evolution anticipated well, that is the evolved intuitions you have are pretty much the right intuitions to be using because the world you're in isn't that different from what evolution anticipated, then from the point of view of what evolution wants for you, then you're probably, probably better off just going with the ignorance that evolution gave you. But the world has changed in many ways. And sometimes you need to consciously analyze your world to wonder how, whether your behavior should be changing as well. You might be a manager, you might be a salesperson, someone to, for whom really understanding these things is important. All right. And the name of that one is The Elephant in the Brain. Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And then you have another book coming out in paperback. What's that right. about? The, the book came out uh, June 2016. It's called The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. And the paperback version is about to come out now in the United States in about a month. And the subject is what happens when robots rule the earth. Now, well, of course, you've probably heard lots of science fiction and, and dramatic stories about this, uh, but we're analyzing, I'm analyzing here what would actually happen, not what would make a dramatic story, but what would actually happen under a particular kind of robot scenario. So d define a couple of terms. What, what are robots in that thinking and, and what does rule the earth mean? So, uh, you know, the general category of interesting scenarios is where we eventually have machines that are so capable that they are cheaper and more effective than humans on pretty much all jobs. Humans have to retire and machines do the jobs. That's a very common concern and scenario. And we can break that scenario into sub-scenarios based on what kind of machines there are. So today, in the last few decades, we've been building a certain kind of machine, a certain kind of robot based on writing software or perhaps machine learning um, algorithms. Um, and that could be how we eventually make robots as smart as people. But there are a number of other scenarios, and, and one of them is called brain emulation. In the brain emulation scenario, we just take the software that's currently in human brains and we copy that software over into artificial hardware and we get it running there without understanding it, without necessarily knowing how it works, just by copying it. And is that like what they're trying to do in Europe with the Human Brain Initiative? Well, that's relevant and related. Um, they are not trying to copy a whole brain and, and make it run. They are more trying to understand a brain by making models of the brain. So in order well, to copy the brain and over, we will need to understand it better than we do now. So the three things we're going to need is lots of cheap, fast, parallel computers. We're going to need to scan individual brains in fine enough chemical and spatial detail. And then we're going to need models of how each kind of cell works so we can put that all together into a model of the whole brain. Uh, none of these technologies are good enough yet. And the other pro the various research projects or people are working on will contribute to advancing the state of the art, especially in that last element of modeling the brain cells. And do you, do you cover C. elegans, the nematode worm, and the open worm project? So my book is not about how we might achieve brain emulation. I see. What would I happen see. as a result. So I've well, you know, for years the book been all these people movement. talking about brain emulation. People have talked about the technology and the timing, uh -huh. and philosophy uh -huh. of identity, the philosophy of consciousness. And I've always thought they've neglected, yeah, but what would actually happen? How does the world actually change? And so that's what my book is about. I got you. That's fascinating. And, and to be clear, do you think, well, I mean, I guess the simplest way to ask the question, do you believe that people are machines? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by a machine, but we are physical. For, for right. physical so we, if, are, we follow physical if, processes, and physical processes can be... Fair enough. So everything inside of a human 
is can be explained fundamentally with fundamentally with physics and chemistry and and, and right not, well that just can be explained it is physics i mean right. you are built out of physical devices physical then i'm, I'm curious in what sense we're not robots and therefore robots already rule the world well it's just more a matter of, of artificially constructed uh so you know as you know we have in the past often had things that were done naturally and then we found artificial substitutes <clears throat> Um, so you know. what would happen? I don't, I mean, don't give away, you know, the, the whodunit in the book or anything, but what no, would, I'm happy to tell you about all, all the if details. Rules, uh, all the details. If, if robots ruled the world. So um, the humans, the biological humans, um, they lose their ability to work for money. That is the robots are better. And then the humans retire. And now they start out owning pretty much all the capital in this world. They own the real estate and the stock and things like that. And so, this new economy, first of all, it starts to grow really quickly, much quickly. So our economy today doubles roughly every 15 years. And this new robot-based economy might double every month. And so that means human investments in this might double every month. So people who had a share in this could get really rich really fast. So they could have a rich retirement. But most of the work is being done by the robots. And uh, they're running really fast and they're really efficient and they're really effective. And so even if humans are on the side sort of setting the overall priorities by sort of owning things or controlling things, they, they really can't be setting the detailed priorities. They can't be managing the details. And so at the very least in that sense, the robots are ruling the earth. That is, they are running things. They are making all the, the detailed choices because they're on the spot and they understand what's going on and the humans on the, distant, on the side really don't. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a really interesting question because I'm, I'm back to the our people machines question because when we when we poll our readership which is technical professionals well i shouldn't say that they're professionals generally in technical roles or in technical companies and when we ask them uh which we recently did you know is we ask questions that, that try to get at that issue. You know, is consciousness uniquely human? Can consciousness, consciousness be reproduced in machines? Uh, is there, is, are there things that happen in your body that, that cannot be uh, explained, you know, with physics in an equation? An overwhelming majority of the people uh, reject the notion that humans are machines. And yet, when I think of the, the, the guests on this show, I would say the overwhelming majority embrace that idea. Um, I mean, a lot depends on what you mean by a machine, the association of machines. So, so to, the, to the extent you're a machine, you're a vastly more complicated machine than humans have ever built. Well, I guess the, the setup so, is, you know, we have these brains that we don't understand how they work. We don't understand the physics of a neuron. A neuron could be as complicated as a supercomputer. Um, we don't know how a thought's encoded and all that. Then on top of that, we have these minds and a mind is it's kind of all this stuff your brain can do that seems, and I stress seems, like something an organ shouldn't be able to do. Like uh, your liver doesn't have a sense of humor, presumably, but you somehow do. And then we have consciousness, this, this thing we all agree on what it is, that is your experience of the world. And yet we don't have, we can't even phrase the question scientifically about how is it that, that matter um, has subjective experience and we don't know what the answer would look like. And so then you look at those three things and you say, but we believe completely that we can, that it's theoretically possible to build mechanical people. Um, 
where in that kind of do you see the the breakdown? Well, uh, like I said, um, there's this concept of a brain emulation, and that concept is the idea that you have a model that has the same input-output relations as the uh, original. That is, we have cells in a brain. They, they take signals in, they change state, they send signals out. And then we're going to make a model of that, which has the same sort of input-output relations. It takes signals in, changes states, and signals out. And the key assumption here is that we are eventually able to make a model that has the same overall signal behavior. Uh, signals in, go into signals out. Now, you could say that's never going to be possible. That'll just be completely impossible. Uh, but the whole starting point in my analysis is to say, what if it is possible, what happens next? So like I said, for decades, when the subject comes up, people really get obsessed with talking about the philosophy questions of, is it even possible? If you made one, is it me? If you made one, is it conscious? And I say that these are all fascinating questions I'm going to ignore because I've always thought there was this neglected question. Like, okay, but what would actually happen? People get so stuck on the philosophy. It's not like nobody should ever talk about the philosophy, but I think somebody should sometimes talk about something else. I, I agree. I agree. But I would assume you have to start by saying, are they going to be as smart as us or a thousand times smarter than us? And well, is it yes. going to happen gradually, or is it going to be incredibly expensive to make a single one? Right. And all of those have uh, So those are things I can figure out, because <laughs> those are, I don't need to answer philosophy questions to figure those things out. And right, so I, but you have to, that is kind of a technique question. Well, how would we do it? And sure. You know, how expensive would it be? Absolutely. So, I mean, clearly it would be at one point too expensive. And so it would just be a, a thing that sometimes people did because it was interesting and cute and they were researching it. But eventually it would become cheap enough that you would then do it a lot. So the age of M doesn't really start until it's cheap enough that you can really just replace people wholesale with them. Uh, and before then, it's a possibility you're near the age of M because they're getting cheaper, but it's not the age of M yet because they're not cheap. Once, a, once they are cheap, uh, then there's uh, many questions we can uh, ask. So, so one thing is that apparently it'll be probably be easier and cheaper early on to do destructive scans of brains. And so that means the first people who become M's will have to make it one-way choice. Uh, they will have to agree to have their brains destructively scanned in order to create an M. And then there'll be this M of them afterwards, and then they won't exist anymore because their brains will have been destructively scanned. So that's the early transition, which, of course, is uh, you know problematic. We can also say that uh, early on, the very beginning, you would be scanning adult people who are at the peak of their careers, uh, lawyers, software engineers, et cetera, because those would be the people you could most sell uh, to rent them as M's. Uh, but then quickly, the world will change to wanting younger humans to scan because they will be flexible and more, better able to learn the new, different job skills required in this new world. And there may well be a period of overlap there where the, the wor M world will be demanding children to scan, but the scans will be destructive. <laughs> And you can imagine a lot of resistance to that. What's the M in, in that? So M is short for emulation. I uh, see. It's, it's just a short name because I have to use it, you know, at least once a sentence through the entire book. Uh, and I didn't want a long, awkward phrase. So if it's possible to make brain emulations, then they exist. And when they're cheap enough, there'd be a lot of them. And I call them an M. And they would, in fact, be smarter and more capable than humans for two key reasons. One is that you can run them at different speeds. Anytime you have a computer program, you can run it on a faster computer and run it faster. And so I estimate they would typically run about a thousand times human speed. Uh, so they, they could think, you know, run a thousand circles around you for every time you think one thing, they could think a thousand things. 
In addition, there's a huge selection effect where the M world is dominated by the few hundred most productive humans. So uh, we, we take all the 7 billion humans and we, we limit ourselves to the ones who are willing to become scanned to become Ms. And then among those, they compete to see who is in the most demand. And the com competition is fierce because whoever is the, in the most demand for any particular job, being it a lawyer or a software engineer, the M economy can make millions or billions of copies of that one to do all the jobs. So it's like today uh, in music, we have fierce music competition because any one musician can make enough copies of their CD or, or music file that everybody could be listening to their music if they wanted to. Uh, the, the ability to copy the music creates fierce competition and a, and a big winner-takes-all effect where the best few musicians get most of the attention. And now in the labor market, the same thing can happen. The best few lawyers or the best few software engineers can dominate those labor markets. And so that means most emulations are actually copies of the few hundred most productive humans. So that makes them elite compared to the typical human. They're, they're like billionaires, heads of state, Olympic gold medalists, Nobel Prize winners. The typical emulation is that good compared to the typical human. So the show is called Voices in AI. Let's, let's talk about artificial intelligence. You have a a few contrarian views about AI. Can you uh, throw one of those out there and let's take that ball and run with it? Sure. Now, just to be clear, M's are a kind of AI in the sense that they are an artificial machine-based intelligence. Uh, there's just through a different process, and that's the process of copying the software that's in a brain. Now, so far, we usually think of AI, uh, for example, as just more better software. So for the last 70 years, the human economy has been making a lot of software, and most of you use a lot of software. It's on your phones, and computers, etc. And uh, we've been making that software slowly better and more effective. And so another route to eventually achieving AI is to just do, continue doing that, uh, going on for maybe even centuries to produce more better AI. Uh, there's other scenarios people have in mind where eventually we get some sort of revolution where some new approach to software uh, takes over and makes a huge difference. Um, so my overall opinions about AI are that um, the, the record so far has been relatively steady. That is, over the last 70 years, we've been making slow, steady progress. But at the rate of progress we've seen for the last 70 years, it's going to take centuries. Yes, yes. You're a contrarian on a few things. Talk about that. So we've seen this, we've seen this over and over again. If you look at the history of these things, we see every decade or two, there's another big burst of interest and concern about AI and automation, and a lot of people saying, we're now near the, the final point. Uh, you know, and the big question is, is this time different? Um, in the past times, people, in all the past times, there were people who said this time is different too. Uh, they said, you know, and usually what happens is there's some cool demos, there's some new products or some new systems that did things that no system previously could do. And of course, these new systems are very impressive. Uh, the key question is, you know, are they showing that we're almost to turn the corner, we're almost, we're going to be able to have machines that do most everything, or are we still a really long way away like we have been every time before? Well, what do you make of certain high-profile individuals who are in the tech industry who, and you know, I mean, you know the, 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 the list, it, it's uh, Elon Musk, um, uh, Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, Wozniak, there's a lot of people in the tech field who... Um, you know, I mean, five to 10 years. I don't have any good reason to think we don't have enough hardware now. Uh, but I also see that in a lot of areas of, of computer science and, and software, 
uh, rates of software progress have tended to track rates of hardware progress. And the best simple explanation for that is that we've usually needed more hardware in order to figure out how to do software better. That is, when we have more hardware, we can try out more experiments, we can try out bigger experiments, we can just try new algorithms that we really couldn't try before. And that ability to try new things is an important uh, element in our learning which kinds of software work better. Eventually, when we know how to do the best kind of software, it may well be that uh, current machines are good enough to do that. Uh, but that doesn't mean we won't need a lot more hardware than we have now to figure out what the right way to organize the software is. You have an intuitive sense that if we, quote, knew how to do it, we have hardware adequate enough to emulate the capability of a human brain. Sure. Now, you know, when, uh, when the science of artificial intelligence was first created, the, there was hope that, uh, you know, in a summer, a few people could, quote, solve it. And the hope was based on the idea that, like in physics and with magnetism and electricity, a few simple rules were discovered that could explain everything. You know, Newton's three laws and all that. Yep. That, that is a nice, a nice clean hope. Right. And, and a reasonable one. And a reasonable one. And then... Ma then Minsky later said, no, it's really a hundred different things your brain knows how to do. You're just a bunch of spaghetti code with these hundred hacks, and it's going to be a long slog. And then you get books that come out called like The Master Algorithm that's, that posit that there's a simple, maybe not simple, but there's a, there's a, you know, a, a single key to it. What's your gut on that? So the way I'd have you think about this is as a distribution of the lumpiness of innovation. So in all areas, there's a distribution of lumpiness. That is, there's a few really big lumps and then lots and lots of little lumps. And probably there's a power law that describes this. In fact, uh, this is true of citations. Uh, there is a power law that describes the distribution of citations. So. Uh, when people have academic papers, the ones that are bigger deals, they attract more citations, and there's a small number of papers that have a lot of citations, and then there's a lot of papers that have hardly any. And so the key question is that lumpiness, the shape of that distribution. So in some areas, it might be that most progress is in a few big lumps, and in other areas, most progress is in lots of little lumps. And that may well vary from topic to topic, although it turns out for citations, it doesn't vary at all. That is, physics and biology and medicine, and they all seem to have pretty much the same lumpiness of citations, uh, even if perhaps they don't have the, quite the same lumpiness of, of progress. So we can look in the past and see the lumpiness of progress in something like computer science or AI, and we can see that that lumpiness has actually been pretty consistent. I mean, the few biggest lumps aren't consistent. Uh, the few biggest lumps come along lumpily, right? <laughs> There's a while, then there hasn't been a lump, and then suddenly another big lump, and then another a while, and no big lumps, and, and you know they don't come steadily; they come randomly. Uh, but we can, if we look at the rest of the distribution, we see uh, that there's a relatively consistent distribution with lots of small lumps and a few big lumps. And what we know about innovation in general is that averaging over all the different fields we've ever studied, most innovation is in the small lumps. Uh, the few big lumps are dramatic and they make for Nobel Prizes and, and great stories, but most progress is in all those little lumps. And that certainly seems to be true in, in uh, machine learning and AI and computer science as well. And I don't actually see any particular evidence that the lumpiness of the distribution has changed recently or, or so that I should expect it to be different in the future. Every once in a while there's a lump and we can say, well, look, there's another big lump, but that's different than saying the lumpiness of the distribution has changed. So recently, people have pointed to AlphaGo 
as their best example of a big lump. They'd say, wow, in one system you made this big dramatic leap past previous systems, and I'm happy to call that a lump. I might just say, well, let's look at how often lumps like that have shown up over the last you know, 70 years, and I'd say, seems like the rate of lumps hasn't changed. But I guess the thesis is that there's a watershed lump, a tipping point, the lump beyond which uh, everything's well, it doesn't have to be one, right? Like, it's kind of like uh, the freezing point of ice, or the freezing point of water. Water doesn't change a lot between, you know, it goes down a degree every hour. You know, didn't really change that much between 35 and 34, or 34 to 33, 33 to, th- and all of a sudden happens. Or like with solar panels, uh, when, when solar energy just gets a micro, you know, cent cheaper than generated, like the whole world changes. The really huge, enormous lump. <laughs> right. So you don't think that the next 20 years or 30 years or 40 years is going to bring some, you, you think it's going to be as lumpy kind of the effect of automation on employment and all of the other things going forward as it has been and unemployment will remain in that. So we understand there are sometimes threshold effects. I mean, that's that was true for my age of M scenario. That is, you know, when M's are expensive, they don't make much difference. And when they get past the threshold of being cheap enough, they make an enormous difference. So we can certainly understand some threshold effects where we see things happen. And, and honestly, that makes sense of a lot of job automation. So you can think of uh, automating a truck driving or automating a travel agent as, as something where the technology is expensive and it gets cheaper and cheaper. And mostly that hardly matters because it's still too expensive. And then at some point it gets cheap enough and then you replace that kind of job. Uh, But that sort of replacement happens across the job, like truck driving or across um, travel agents, but it doesn't happen across the whole economy. If we think about these different thresholds as being distributed, it looks like they're more distributed in roughly a log normal distribution. That is, we've seen many, many decades, if not centuries, of automation slowly getting better and then replacing particular jobs at a point where the automation passes the threshold for that job. But the position of those thresholds varies enormously across jobs. Centuries ago, there were jobs that were replaced that were really easy to replace, and they still have a lot of jobs that are really hard to replace with respect to current ones. And so we don't see any particular trend in the number of jobs that are getting displaced. It's been a pretty steady rate over a while. Any one job has a threshold effect where all the jobs get replaced, of that type get replaced all at once. But in the whole economy, we haven't seen like huge sections of the economy get replaced. Well, would you say it's fair to say we're seeing a dramatic change in the number of businesses that are using artificial intelligence to try to solve business problems or not? Yeah. I I don't see anything recently changing relative to the long-term trends. Now, that doesn't mean something couldn't change. I mean, there's no guarantee that past trends will continue. We should be ready for the possibility of change and uh, think about how to prepare for that. But that's different from saying we're seeing a dramatic change. We're seeing another burst of interest and attention like the ones we saw before. We saw... So I was caught up in a previous burst, you see. This is personal for me. I was a graduate student in 1983... And I read about cool things happening in AI. And so I left my graduate program to go out to Silicon Valley to get involved in AI because I bought the hype at the time. The people were saying, we're almost there. It's just about to revolutionize everything. And I bought into that hype. Uh, But of course it wasn't. But there was back then a burst of attention and interest in AI. There was all over the news, lots of articles, lots of companies getting involved. And it was also in the early 60s, there was a big burst of interest and attention in the topic. 
And every few decades, we've seen this huge burst of interest and concern and attention going way, way back. And so you wouldn't be surprised to see another AI winter where everybody's like, ah, that was just another false start. Not only wouldn't I be surprised, that would be my most likely prediction. So, and, and, and based on the rate of progress, you think we could be centuries away from... Right. Along the path of making more better software, it looks like we're plausibly centuries away. So one of, one of the ways I've tried to estimate this is I've asked AI researchers in various fields, how far have we come in your field in the last 20 years as a percentage of the distance we have to go to human-level abilities? And you're saying, uh, for, for the typical field, so you're saying some fields we already have human-level ability, like a, a calculator, right? Exactly. And some fields were much farther away than, t some fields were, were less than 1% of the way there, or even smaller. So if you were advising a business that has been hearing all of this stuff about it, uh, about AI, and, and they're, they're saying, if you don't act now... You know, your competitors will adopt this. It's the ability to make better decisions. So you would, you would encourage prudence, but what would, what would you say? What would be your piece of advice? Honestly, if you're making major business decisions on the basis of these hyped press cycles, you're, you're already in a losing position. I'm sorry. <laughs> As almost any business person, almost anywhere should be doing, you should be noticing various opportunities that might be showing up and looking to see whether you can see an edge using it, but holding it to the standard of can you actually see something that works. Um, and, and so far, we actually haven't had very much. So you, you have to admit that at the moment, there's relatively few uh, AI applications that have produced substantial revenue from customers. Well, I guess a lot of that would boil down to your definition of an of AI, I mean, can't. I mean, to, to be honest, you would have to. I mean, you would have to say. Well, let's say techniques developed in the last ten years uh, have not produced substantial revenue. Uh, obviously, there's techniques that go way back, and then you could argue whether that's just software or you know just general statistics or whatever. Well, you could argue that that's all AI is, even in theory. I mean, even in AGI is is. Sure. I would say, according to you, software and general statistics, right? Well, that, that's at least one way to think about it. I mean, again, that's that becomes this key interesting question about the future: is when we eventually have robots that are as smart as humans, what kind of software will that be made out of? So a conservative scenario is to say, well, it's going to be made out of the same kind of software we've basically seen for the last 70 years, just more and better of it. Uh, my M scenario says, no, it'll be based out of brain emulations, which is something we're not at all using in the economy, uh, but that eventually it'll be cheap enough to use those. And people have other scenarios, they imagine, of new kinds of software that might appear. So f flashing back to your 1983 uh, situation, if... Um a college, if somebody who was in a graduate program right now came to you and said, I'm thinking of leaving my program to study machine learning, what would you say? Well, I have been asked that, and I have said, buy low, sell high. Look, you know, these fashions come in waves, and um, just like in the stock market, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when your cab driver starts to recommend stocks, it's time to get out of the market, not in. Uh, you know, when something has really reached a huge burst and crescendo of attention and, and press that probably can't be sustained, uh, that's when it's probably going to decline. Not, it's, it's the wrong time to get in. You want to get on, on something before everybody else knows about it and finds it to, to be the next new fashion. Uh, you know, Waiting until everybody's heard about it 
is exactly when you're near the end of the fashion cycle. So uh, it sounds like you're saying don't do it. it. It's about it's a bubble that's about to burst. These things have consistently gone in waves for a long time. So you got to kind of expect this the same wave will happen here. Uh, if you were getting in early on this wave, then I might say great. Good, you know, good for you. Uh, if you're at the end of the wave, then that's again, it's like in the stock market. We've had a record rise in stocks. This is exactly the wrong time to suddenly jump, you know, with both feet into stocks. So someone could say, well, you know, we've had, we, we've, artificial intelligence goes through, you know, as you say, these different phases. And sometimes we call it big data and sometimes we call it, you know, other things. But one consistent um, attribute of the market for programmers is a perennial shortage, that the number of things we could do with computers. Sure. And so, yeah, exactly. The the costs of jumping on a fad here are much lower than the costs of jumping on some other fad, of course. You know, if you you go into machine learning and uh, the fad is, as I say, it disappears, you'll still collect a bunch of skills that will be technically useful and you'll still be in good demand, Uh, you know. You'll, you'll know math, you'll know computers, uh, you'll have learned a bunch of statistics. Those are all fine skills, and you'll you'll do fine in the world. What, what were you studying in 83 when you jumped ship? Well, I was uh, studying, I, I started studying grad school in philosophy of science after having an undergraduate in physics, and then I switched back to physics. And so I was completing a master's in physics, and I, I, and I could have gone on for a PhD in physics, but I But I was, AI in 83 has served you well to this day, right? Well, again, I, I went into software. Uh-huh. And I learned a lot in software, and I could do other things in software, and I might have kept my career in software. That wouldn't have been a terrible thing. So yes, you know, something that makes you jump onto the software bandwagon, even under false pretenses, still uh, you'll do fine because there's a huge demand in the world for software, and you know, math-oriented software, and you'll you'll learn math and statistics. Those are again all, all wonderful skills that you can uh, use in a lot of different ways. Your life will go fine. So what do you make of things like GDPR, the right to know? why a computer made a decision, or all the talks about developing ethics for AI. Yeah, well, it, it's, I, I think it's, it's holding, again, people want to just jump on the, we're talking about AI bandwagon to talk about whatever else it is they're concerned about, and uh, which is fine, but you've you got to be realistic about these things. So at the moment, we have this thing called a credit score, okay? You have a credit score, and it matters a lot in your life, and there is not transparency with your credit score. They don't show you the formula that produces your credit score, it, even though it matters enormously in your life. There is no explanation of your credit score. There's no track tracing of, of having how your recent purchasing changed your credit score. And yet credit scores are allowed to exist and continue in our world. Uh, there's a lot of these things in our world where there are systems which, with numbers and, and systems that produce numbers and estimates about people that they don't have transparency of. They don't even have an ability to correct, and yet these things persist. So uh, given all that, I I don't know why it makes sense to hold AI to some new higher standard that we haven't held previous systems to. And what about the debates around the use of these technologies in war, specifically to make kill decisions? Again, I think that's indirectly a way to just complain about war, which I'm happy to complain about war. But, uh, you know, the key question is, are these new technologies substantially different from the old ones? Uh, In war... Uh, people get hurt, and technology helps you to hurt people, and you could say that's a shame, but in a competition between different militaries, you kind of want your military to also have the best technology. 
And part of technology in war is some degree of indirection and delegation in making choices. That There's just no way around that. Uh, and the people creating the war machines will you know, try to create the versions of them that they think will achieve their purpose as well. And, you know, of course, there's always going to be a lot of collateral damage when you're using war machines uh, in war. Uh, so I don't necessarily see just how these new applications of technology to war are substantially different from the old ones. Would you consider a self-driving car to be AI? Well, of course, this is the old dispute. <laughs> you know, people long noted, and correctly so, that things that were considered AI when we couldn't do them, when we finally could, uh, just became software and technology. Right. I, I guess I'm trying to rise to your challenge of something that's going to make a bunch of money based on new techniques. And... Right. Well, self-driving cars are, are one of the best candidates in the near future. But uh -huh. you know, even within the next 20 years, we managed to replace all truck drivers with automated truck drivers. That will still be within the range of the kind of job displacement we've seen over the last century. It won't be a deviation from the previous trends. That right there would just be part of the usual trends. Well, I would say um, that's all very provocative. And um, I, 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 th I think it's, well, it's on the century's timescale, right? But I, I still think AI is coming eventually, and we should think about what will happen then. <laughs> right. Well, but the M's might well happen sooner. So my, my projection for the M technology is in roughly a century or so sooner. So that's why I think M's in a, it's an especially interesting scenario, because I think it's likely that we will have M's before we have ordinary software that's as good as humans. But it's still not right around the corner. We have time to think about it, but we should still. So think about flood insurance. Um, the time to buy flood insurance is before it starts raining really heavy. That's the time to set up your flood insurance. And so because we're not just on the precipice of AI, this is a good time to think about how to insure ourselves against the risk that AI might offer. Fair enough. So give us uh, how people can follow the name of, of, of the two books that have currently had the, the new one that's coming out and the new one that's available in, or the older one that's available in paperback. And then how can people follow you and keep up with uh, your view of the world? Well, I'm Robin Hansen. I have a Twitter account and I have a blog called Overcoming Bias, but I, I'll tweet the main posts there. And um, I have a website, hansen.gmu.edu, with lots of my essays from many years. And I have these two books that came out recently. The most recent one is The Elephant in the Brain. And there's a website called elephantinthebrain.com about hidden motives. And then there's the older book that's just about to come out in paperback called uh, The Age of M. And there's a website, ageofm.com, uh, for more detail there. Thank you. It has been an incredibly fascinating near hour. And uh, you're welcome to come back anytime, anytime you like. I'd love to. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.